0: Hi, Mary. How are you doing? You keeping cool okay this week?
1: Yeah, well, trying, trying my best and not doing all that well because I'm, as you can see, well, as Dan can see, I'm working from home today, which is not the coolest place to be, but we've got people doing some work in in the garden. Dan, I see you're in the office, so you've got Aircon now, but I guess you had to brave the journey in to get there.
0: Yeah, I'm in the office and it is nice and climate controlled in here, obviously. But I can can see a lot of people making that point, actually, that an unexpected benefit of the office is actually air conditioning in the hot weather. But yeah, for me, obviously, I've got a decent commute. So I personally would not go into the office for that reason, because, you know, sweating on a train for two hours to sit in an air conditioned office, that equation doesn't quite work. But obviously, there are other reasons for me to be in the office. Yeah.
1: So you're still not feeling particularly fresh on a day like today? exactly.
0: No, 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 exactly. Yeah. No.
1: But it does feel like proper summer, doesn't it? For the first, well, we've had hot spells, but this really feels like summer.
0: Yeah, it's pretty peak summer, isn't it? What have we had? Glastonbury's wrapped up. We had Wimbledon's just wrapped up last weekend. British Grand Prix a couple of weekends ago. Yeah, we're pretty much there, aren't we? It's, it's summer. Yeah,
1: and out-of-office replies coming thick and fast. I don't know about you, Dan, but I'm, I'm certainly seeing a lot of those schools breaking up in a couple of weeks, I guess. So, yeah. So what are your summer plans then, Dan?
0: Well, we are doing our usual trip to France in August. We're going to be driving down to a town called Sainte, which is in southwest France on the river Charente, which is where my wife's family lives. So, yeah, we're going down there for a few weeks with, with Leo, doing a bit of water skiing on the river and just sort of chilling out around there, which is always always very nice. Baby
1: water skiing or
0: <laughs> I, well, <laughs> how young do they start? Yeah, <laughs> they do start them pretty young, actually. We haven't, I'm not sure we've talked. I mean, he is still very, very young to be trying to do that. But um there were sort of rumours and suggestions, so we'll see how that how that works out. I look
1: forward to hearing about that.
0: <laughs> and then what, what are you up to?
1: Well, one of the reasons for having people do some work on the garden is we're actually at home for most of the summer. So we did a, a couple of early trips, a couple of weekends away that I will have mentioned. We're away at the end of September and, and trips sort of later in the year. So actually quite looking forward to being mainly at home over the summer, although we are still in peak wedding season. So we've got a couple of weeks weekends here and there for friends weddings mm.
0: so oh you are yeah you were saying that the other day when we, we caught up with the wedding season thing well so so you're basically going to keep everything going for all the rest of us well, through the whole summer right you're going to be there it looks like the it's it. on cracking everything out. looks
1: like it so thankfully most people do slow down a little bit in the summer otherwise that might have been there uh, oh yeah counterproductive for me but yeah hoping to spend some time in the garden
0: and how's the bamboo hedge looking
1: it's relatively neat i would say it needs a little bit of a trim it just needs trimming all the time doesn't it so yeah as yeah, i as i look did, over my did, laptop did. i can see the couple of spikes but they've not quite reached tree height yet which is what they had done before so we're not looking too bad and we're having the shed painted a color that blends in a bit with the bamboo so we're getting that tropical feel that's what we're aiming for a whole vibe love it love it yeah (laughs) absolutely garden
0: parties pool party vibe love it yeah okay cool all right should we should we get on with the episode
1: we need to talk about the end of season, end of season oh, we do, we next do, week. So, yeah, week. Yeah. So we've got today's episode and we've got one more episode next week before the end of our season three. What we thought we'd do for that is a bit of a look back over the season and picking out the things that people have told us are the most underappreciated things about investing. Try and find some, well, trends if there are trends, try and find some contradictions if there are contradictions. So look forward to that chat next week and then we'll be off for a couple of months over the summer
0: yeah yeah that should be a good one it should be a great one and we'll, we might also re-release a few older episodes over the summer as well just to keep you going if you are really starved of content and also just a quick trailer if you haven't listened to last week's episode with michael mobison really recommend that we've got a lot of good feedback on that already so maybe get that on your list as well if you haven't heard that absolutely anyway so to this week's episodes with john bowman we'll get to that now
1: absolutely and stay cool
0: <laughs> enjoy the episode stay cool everyone <laughs> stay cool <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: Hi, everyone. This week, we are delighted to be joined by the Executive Vice President of Kaya, that's the Chartered Alternative Investment Association, John Bowman. John,
2: welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for asking me.
1: John, before we get stuck into the detail today, could you give the listeners a sense of your role at, at Kaya and what it means for the way you think about investment?
2: Sure. As I just mentioned before we went on, You know, they call me Executive Vice President at an organization like Kaya. We all wear a bunch of hats just to be clear. So, but what that means quite literally is my current portfolio, my scope includes the CAIA credential proper. So our high stakes examination, of course, which is our, what our brand is kind of anchored to and has the 20 year history really are the lifeline of our organization and our identity in many ways. I also have our thought leadership. And what we mean by that is kind of all the continuing education, the non-credentialing piece of content development. So that's All mediums you might imagine, all channels you might imagine, everything from web and blogs and kind of short form content, webinars, podcasts, all the way through to the other end of the spectrum, which is some of what we're going to talk about today, which is long form white papers and and seminal pieces, such as our portfolio for the future. And then finally, perhaps a bit oddly, is I oversee our Asian business. So I've got one of our major three regions as well. So that's my current scope. But again, we all wear plenty of hats at an organization like Kaya. Yeah. And then kind of, it must have grown
0: quite a lot over the last 20 years or so. And can you give us a rough idea of the sort of scope of it now versus what it would have been 20 years ago?
2: Sure. And really, you know, maybe starting with 20 years ago, very briefly, the idea germinated maybe somewhat oddly to the listeners in Western Massachusetts, about 100 miles west of Boston. And that might sound odd, but it, it was anchored to or related to the Eisenberg School of Business at University of Massachusetts similar to the way CFA was kind of anchored to in its history rooted in the University of Virginia. And so this academic rigor associated with the center of hedge funds still exists within Eisenberg. And you might remember that alternatives in the early 2000s were 20 years old this year. In the early 2000s was largely hedge funds, as we call it today. There was a little bit of private capital and kind of buyout, but really private capital hadn't really taken shape. And so now we fast forward 20 years Alternatives were maybe 5% of the global investable universe back then. It's now 12% and 18 trillion U.S. on our numbers. And we are catering to that explosion and that tide and tsunami of interest that is coming in. To answer your question, Dan, we are a little over 12,000 members around the world. We have approximately 6,000 new candidates that go through our program every year. And I'd like to think our reach and influence kind of punches above that weight on paper. But that's our current stat lineup.
1: Mm. Just in terms of the membership, I mean, of course, over the 20 year period, I'm sure you've seen the sorts of people going through the process of becoming a member evolving. Have you noticed any, I mean, maybe taking the last sort of five to 10 years where you already had a relatively broad membership? Are there any sort of trends in the sort of person going for this qualification that surprised you or that are particularly dominant?
2: Well, I think as you might imagine, Mary, the origin, as I've just described, the large majority, disproportional number of candidates in those first few classes were hedge fund folks and then CIO suites of large capital pools, asset owners that were trying to figure out how do I allocate even a small slice of this pie to this really idiosyncratic and strange, unconventional world of, again, at the time, diversifying strategies that we call hedge funds. Fast forward to today to your question, and actually it was just in the last two years where the that Rubicon of private capital versus hedge funds, we've got a larger percentage of our members in private capital largely defined as we do in hedge funds. So it takes a while for that pipeline, even though the front end on the candidate side changed years ago, for it to kind of work through the system of that Python and affect the ultimate membership on the other side, because you matriculate through candidacy to become a member, of course. The other big change and we can talk a little bit about this is as democratization has taken shape on the tailwinds of discussions at both the regulators and within asset managers and manufacturers to start delivering some of these uncorrelated returns through alternative strategies to the wealth management distribution chain that has changed the course of the types of people that have come to us looking for engagement so the entire distribution sales chain of the wealth management world, starting with the manufacturers down through the intermediaries all the way into the last mile of advisors or what you would call relationship managers in Switzerland or in Singapore. That is all starting to kind of awaken to this massive new world of, of alternatives. So that, that's been the big two changes over the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating. It sounds a bit like you've had a front row seat for some of the biggest sort of trends and changes in asset management over the last couple of decades. It's it's great, John. But there's a bunch of stuff we want to get into. Before we get into all that, why don't you tell us one thing we ought to know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Well, the last
2: sentence in my LinkedIn profile, and I don't know how many people actually read the bottom of that because you have to expand I did. I did. 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 Well, (laughs) Well done. Then you know the answer to the stand already. But certainly my most proudest and most important role that I have is Six children. So four of those individuals and children are gone. One is married, two left in the home. So I my leadership style and capability is tested and goes through iterative failure process every evening. And that shapes and <laughs> that shapes and kind of toughens me up when I come to the easier job of the office. So that that is something that I think a lot of people jaws hit the hit the table when I talk about the army that I have at home.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And presumably upwards feedback is not an issue at home either, whereas sometimes in the office that can be.
2: It's amazing. Yeah. The title at work seems to have no effect on their willingness to share very candidly, where at work, as you know, you kind of have to draw it out of people. So you're right, Mary. I don't have to ask for feedback. It's kind of remarkable,
0: actually. We were speaking to Michael Mobison just last week, and he was talking about, he's, he's got five kids, which, which is obviously a very big family. And just a week later, we're now talking to someone who had even more than that. So our last two guests, we had
2: 11 kids between them. Well, Michael's so. just getting started, you know, young, young family. So he's got plenty more, <laughs> plenty more to go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> are all your kids close by or are they quite well spread?
2: You know, we actually just made a move to Salt Lake City for part of that reason, Mary, is that for whatever reason, we've been East Coast folks, a stop in London, along the way, but East Coast folks for most of our life, my wife and I, that is, and for whatever reason, the four older kids that have left have kind of migrated, the center of gravity, of the Bowman's has shifted to the West Coast. And so part of uh, you know that midlife change or transition is that you start chasing your kids rather than the opposite. So we've moved at least a long way towards getting closer to them on the West Coast. So yes, they've settled on this side of the country.
0: And so you're coming to us live and direct from Utah, you said. So Little that, south that's of that's Salt Lake, yeah. Podcast. First guest
2: from Utah, so hopefully one of many. It has become an incubator of, of huge startups. I don't know; think many people know that, but this is... Is that right? Yeah, they call it the Silicon Slopes for obvious reasons, but a ton of startup and venture money pouring into to Utah for a, a lot of reasons. Wow, super interesting. Should we get started then?
0: For a good place to start might be a piece that you wrote, I think it was back into last summer now, it's almost a year ago, entitled The Portfolio of the Future. And so I wondered if you could talk through a few things but maybe just start by talking about why that idea and why did you choose to write about it at that point in time?
2: Yeah, Dan, actually this was released late March this year. We've had a few, we have a bit of a rhythm to this. So we certainly had a couple last year that you might be thinking of, but The Portfolio for the Future we released in concert with a big marquee event called Alts Los Angeles, which is a big, I think, centerpiece or anchor event for us. It's the closest we have to an annual conference, let's put it that way. So, we re- released it in late March. You know, who would have ever thought Kaya was a market timer? So, that's the last thing we would claim for ourselves. But there was something very prescient about the timing and the message of this. The, the motivation, Dan, to your question was really as a professional body, which I, I want to stress and punctuate. We have a very different mission and identity than a trade body and some of our friends that are truly they exist to represent or advocate on behalf of a constituency within the marketplace right and and we do a lot of good work with some of our friends on that side but as a professional body you're not bound to any one master and so really if there's any master or constituent that we're serving it's the underlying investor and so in many ways we're here just to make finance better for the greater good and raise its professionalism. So I think that's really important to understand as a grounding factor where Kaya, and I put CFA in that camp too, which is a former employer of mine too, and I think extremely highly of their work as well. But so when a professional body finds these tectonic shifts, we're sitting on its fault line of economic, professional, capital market shifts of this generational level, and not to sound dramatic, but we really believe that we're at these this perfect storm of inflection points, sometimes it's more than just a credential, may I say, just education, just continuing education. You need to stand up with a very strong kind of seminal forward-looking with a lot of runway to that message and confront, poke, prod, encourage the industry towards more disruption and more change. And so that's really where this came from as we felt like we needed to say something because things were changing. So portfolio for the future really is meant to be our response to what we believed, as we stated in the piece was the end of one era and the beginning of a new epoch which is going to be have an environment and pillars and, and conditions that are very different than what we've experienced over the last 40 years. We actually argue that the last 40 years has been unique even though that's most of all we know professionally is very low interest rates, a complete lack of inflation, capital market expectations and near double digits. And let's be honest, you know, that relatively is fairly easy, may I say, not to take anything away from the hard work of our industry, but a fairly easy set of conditions to achieve actuarial rates, goals of a high net worth family, a spending rate for an endowment. We're now going back to what I would argue is a more normal period where fiduciaries need to work harder and smarter to achieve that seven, eight percent. And so what portfolio for the future is meant to answer is what are the marks that's what we call them what are the marks or the characteristics of a portfolio that that is speaking into or responding to this headwind of a very different environment than we've been used to more recently
1: hmm. and could you talk us through some of those marks i think you've got is it five or six sort there of are key five. Factors yeah yeah
2: made? there are five a, a couple could perhaps sound obvious, and then others maybe less so. So diversification, that sounds like an obvious building block. I mean, every one of us in the academy and our, whether we took a a high stakes credential or went through a master's of finance, diversification was the first principles, building blocks of what investing is all about. Let's be abundantly obvious though, in the last 10 to 20 years, it's actually not been helpful. You could argue that 100% maybe US equities, but certainly risk on equities has been the best place to be. Now hindsight's always 2020, but the 60-40 portfolio, even 100 equity has been the place to be. Diversification has been out of favor and that's not normal nor a kind of traditional working place in which portfolio construction starts is an environment where diversification is not necessary. So a return of diversification, a return for the need of both asset class and security selection being critical for attribution and meeting goals is, is maybe the most obvious, but I do think that's a big change. Where is most of that diversification coming from, Mary? That's number two, which is private capital. Private capital, we take a kind of a different tact, and you might find this somewhat unique or ironic, given that we're the Chartered Alternative Investment Association, is that we're not arguing that private capital is a panacea. For the next bastion of alpha, and I think a lot of the mass media and GPS argue that we think that's dangerous. That certainly could be the case, and we believe in a in a persistent illiquidity premium, which we could get into. But we argue that that the most important lens in which you should look at private capital is that that is where enterprise value creation is occurring. Organizations are staying private longer, sometimes permanently, and if you simply want rather ironic way to say it, out or beta on the global economy and particularly new economy, you have to have diversification across private capital and public capital. So more illiquid is the second one. Third is the fiduciary responsibility of this industry. That goes back to where I started explaining kind of who Kaya is as a professional body. We exist to push and challenge and raise professionalism across the industry, return us to our roots of this, service mentality where client interests are always first and that means that we have still a lot of work to do in flowing that through every element of our value chain's dna and we can talk about specifics fourth just finishing this cycle fourth is the rise of the universal owner we call it active engagement so the typical client again whether we're talking a beneficiary in a big institutional capital pool or a high net worth family has a lot more demands on that capital and the types of objectives they want achieved, the type of impact that they want that capital contributing to. It's not just financial anymore. In some cases, it's pre-financial. In some cases, it's non-financial. And so how does a fiduciary balance all those goals? And then finally, something we're going to talk about is operational alpha. The non-investment alpha element of this industry that I think has been untapped perhaps neglected that where there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in areas like culture and governance and innovation and use of technology, AI, that AI, I mean, alternative data, not alternative investment. So huge amount of opportunity in bringing, I think, a tailwind of alpha opportunity through non-traditional opportunity. So those are the five pillars in which this this new portfolio stands on.
0: Yeah. I'm just nodding furiously because you've sort of you're hit so many, too many really yeah, interesting yeah, talking exactly. points that I like. But I, I, was, I was wondering, so it sounds like the portfolio of the future is, I'm relieved to hear it's not something like 60% Bitcoin, 40% meme stocks is not the way you decided to go for that one then. It's slightly more different than that. No,
2: absolutely not. It's a much more principled base. We wouldn't pretend to stand up here, as I said, and tell you which asset classes are best. I would say that in the diversification area, and Mark Anson, who used to run CalPERS and as a A good friend of the history of he now runs common fund history of kaya's heritage in many ways he literally wrote the first curriculum so certainly a well-known investor but he argues in that diversification piece that who knows where the next bastion of alpha or beta could be it might be in digital assets so again the fiduciary needs to have a tool belt that is much more skilled and diversified in many ways to, to be able to pursue and hunt and gather Information instead of relying on that sixty forty anchor that I think we've become accustomed to.
1: Yeah, as Dan said, there's so many so many areas to return to. I wonder if we could first go back to mainly it's two, which was the fiduciary mindset point. But I guess we might tap into a bit of four, which was the kind of universal owner active active engagement point. And just just I mean, you you've you've said it's important. Of course, it's one of those key principles. Could you perhaps expand on reasons why it's important, but also What recent trends in the investment industry, the rise of the individual investor and so much information overload and and what that does for those key principles?
2: Yeah, I have to be careful here because I could talk about this point for our entire time. And I know you don't want to, but let let me just also say that there was a debate internally about whether the professionalism or the fiduciary mindset should be kind of thinking through the the building metaphor, the foundation. And you've got the four pillars kind of rising off of that. So I, I think that's a helpful a helpful rubric to think about the way that we think about prioritizing this even though appeared as number three right so professionalism again this is a service industry it's a agency it's, it's what sir john templeton called he likened it to ministry because you are sacrificing in many ways your own interests and needs and the client is putting all this trust and in many ways their future dignity in your hands in return for a fee and return for trust and We have to take that much more seriously. And I think sometimes we get so lost in the process and the machinery and the apparatus of making money and what's the carry and what's alpha and peer rankings that we lose the bigger picture here. I've been in the business, so I get it. So I'm not naive to the importance of profitability, but I do think we lose kind of our ballast often. And I will also say, look, and this is perhaps in the defense of the industry. When things are going very well, when you're riding a tidal wave of risk on 20 year monetary influence of tailwind, and as I, as we kind of described in the preface of this piece, it gives you very little motivation to change. And so I, I think now part of the reason we wrote this is it's going to be a more difficult environment where people need to set themselves apart on this underlying basis, the very roots of our industry, which is putting their interests first and existing to benefit And protect them and so very practically just what does this mean i think there's still lots of work to do in our industry particularly in the private capital when we think about more material ownership of gps and their funds typically the kind of one to two percent token interest we need much more alignment on that and have been advocating on behalf of that obviously the disclosure bug is an area where we need a lot more work on costs standards of care ownership structure. When is it a fiduciary responsibility? When is it not? There's all kinds of gymnastics that sometimes GPs can do to say, in this particular case, we don't have to abide by fiduciary. And we've got to lose that. The entire relationship is really based upon that. Some of the irresponsible debt covenants and dividend payouts are nothing but piracy mechanisms. Let's be honest, it affects and it in many ways perverts the IRR and the way that you're marketing and allows them a whole lot of flexibility to kind of juice those returns. So we've got to get rid of that. Maybe finally, on the very practical side, this is kind of the four-point plan that we've talked about, uniform definition of performance. IRR has been under a lot of scrutiny. I think sometimes, honestly, the, the, the industry can get lost and tied around the axle in the IRR debate. But the reality is, to be fair, we need a single, albeit unperfect, but let's just all agree on it, what that measure might be to compare one private equity fund, for example, to another. And so these are just a few of the areas by which we could do a whole lot of good in putting our money where our mouth is and embedding kind of this lip services of professionalism into the very fabric and megaphones of of how we position ourselves as GPs.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly good point. I mean, it's funny you're talking about IRRs. We spoke to a chap, an academic called Ludovic Falipu, who you might have Ludo, heard of yes. I, I know a few Ludo podcasts well. ago. And he, he obviously has a lot to say about IRRs, which I think is important for a lot of people to hear. And
2: He's a big fan of the IRR. I, I, yeah, I, like, <laughs> it kind of, kind of kind
0: of came across. But I think that sort of stuff, that challenge is important to hear. And, and it's important for GPs and managers to take on board, I think. And that sounds like that's kind of what you're, sort of what you're saying. But I guess... This point about the fiduciary mindset, I do think it's really important because I personally feel it's kind of gone missing a little bit these last couple of decades as managers have focused on being almost fund supermarkets. You know, they create these funds and then a huge emphasis on going out and selling those funds. And then, like you say, this focus on the minutiae of funds and how you get a little bit more there, here and there. And, and it's just lost that bigger picture. And not to put him on a pedestal, but when you look at what, say, someone like Warren Buffett, the way he just talks about his portfolio. I don't know if he's the ideal example of that, but just the way he talks about the investments that, that he makes in Berkshire Hathaway, it's it's like they're his. And they obviously they are partly. And I just feel there's a big difference between how he talks about it and most managers talk about it, which is a bit more arm's length, like, you know, the fund this, the fund that, and kind of it's just different,
2: isn't it? No, I agree, Dan. And, you know, I think it's important to have perspective on the history of your industry, right? It's been maybe a hundred years since JP Morgan created kind of the first merchant bank that eventually evolved into things like private funds and private equity, right? Where you're you're taking actual vested interest in a business. It was about a hundred years ago where the first mutual fund was created as we currently know it. And our industry has kind of been in catch up ever since and trying to professionalize and put up the accoutrements and all the apparatus to create protection ever since. And it's never quite gotten there. And so to your point, when I think about the product-based mindset we have versus the client-based mindset or mantra or ethos that we have. Our worry that we wanna kind of have a reset or a mulligan on, if you're a golfer, is as wealth management, as I alluded to a moment ago, as the wealth management product begins to proliferate, as the ESG product begins to proliferate, how do we make sure this is not just product profit being stuffed down the throat of these clients rather than the client driving the needs of what they're trying to accomplish in their goals and then products as a response to that being set up to meet those needs and we still have that sequence wrong we're still upside down in many ways and so that if there was any motivation for kaya to exist it's exactly that
1: yeah yeah and it's interesting i suppose when you think about you think about the pension scheme regime in the uk which which, of course, Dan and I will be very familiar with, and certain new requirements, which at the moment, the key thing with new requirements is climate change, and it is forcing trustees and pension schemes to think very carefully. It will drive behaviours. It will drive behaviours slightly differently depending on whether a group decides to go sort of minimum compliance or really embrace the spirit of what the requirements are supposed to be achieving. That does start to potentially tilt that balance slightly towards the client asking for what they need. But the problem is it's forcing only one specific issue to be discussed. So it doesn't necessarily get the client to demand what they actually want to need. It gets them to demand the thing that will help them to tick a box, which is probably also quite well aligned with what they want and need, but doesn't necessarily get you the full picture.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. I think that's a great use case of what I'm referring to. And I, again, we could talk about it further. There's there's no bigger advocate and fan and believer in each of the ESG pieces or components, whether that's climate change and renewable energy, whether that's diversity of thought, gender, race, and whether that's kind of proper, solid, healthy governance and culture. The problem is when you throw all that together into this big mashup, you're trying to measure everything. And what happens when you try to measure everything? You measure nothing. And so I think it's a massive impediment in the greatest of ironies to our attempts to actually embed and integrate some of these individual factors in. And to your point, Mary, let's let that specific client of said capital pool determine which of these factors are most important, because they won't all be equally relevant or equally important, depending on the beneficiaries or the specific family, depending on the capital pool you have. But let them kind of choose what's most important and then actually embed it in the very fabric of how you're assessing and building portfolios, rather than have this overlay, which I think is confusing everyone. So a lot of strong thoughts on that. But I think we, we've outlived the ESG mashup. It served a very good purpose as a kind of a hammer to wield against an, an immovable force that was not listening for many, many decades. And now it's time to actually mature that and embed it into the financial statements in our selection rather than have it set within this larger body of Frankenstein that we've thrown all together.
0: On this point of the fiduciary mindset that you're talking about managers sort of ought to adopt, what are you seeing there? Are you seeing really genuinely good examples of managers who are, who are doing that well? Because I guess, particularly in private markets, you've got, should we say, a small number of very large, very successful firms which are good at marketing themselves, but one suspects might not be that sort of open to change on that front. So how would you sort of assess the landscape there?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't want to conflate an answer to two questions with this, but part of what you just alluded to in the latter half of your question is that the the mega funds, particularly the buyouts, the big folks that access is an issue with them. And so there's very little turnover and new voices in the clientele to force kind of that change, right? And at Kaya, we organize and, and facilitate, for example, these these large allocator roundtables, and we close them off to GPs and service providers intentionally so we can have real, safe, frank environments. And without giving names, because it's all Chatham House rules, we have multi-hundred-billion-dollar pensions sitting next to less than a billion-dollar endowments. And so the gentleman on the right will say, my voicemail is full. I can't return all these calls. And the CIO on the right, she'll say, I can't even get these folks to return my call." So there's a major problem just with access but to your question of a couple bright points dan i guess two areas in particular i love this movement and i don't know if it's trendy or it's it's an evolution that it has some staying power of permanent capital i talked about moving away from the token interest so i'm not suggesting it has to all be permanent capital but when you've got actual ownership not in a fund but in the asset management gp right you are truly aligned in doing what's best for clients that has longer staying power, more than just fund one or fund two or fund three. And you're, not, you're going to be much less inclined, as I mentioned earlier, to do some of these IRR gymnastics to get the stated marketing deck really have a high octane message, right? Because you're there for the long term. So permanent capital, it's not available to anyone. That's not a universal solution, but I think it's one the other one i've seen is on the fee side i've you know right now the the carry mechanism is really a one-sided option that benefits the gp right you are certainly aligned with the client on the way up but you're not aligned on the way down and i've seen a couple really enterprising gps start to say why wouldn't we choose that benchmark return that hurdle and agree with the client that we're going to share in the upside we're going to share in the downside and to me that is fiduciary mindset with legs on it in a very, very concrete form. And I I just love that. And I've seen a couple of the Europeans and I think one in the U.S. start to think that way. And that is really encouraging.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We could talk about this, as you said, (laughs) we could talk about this for a long time, but perhaps we move on. So let's talk about private markets and illiquidity. So you mentioned illiquidity premium. Could you maybe just talk around... Maybe it's obvious, but just spell out for the listeners why you feel that is now a very key aspect of building blocks, which perhaps hasn't been so obvious in the last couple of decades.
2: Right. Well, what I mentioned, just to clarify, I think diversification is a building block that I think will have much more relevance and resonance now versus the last 20 years, let's say from a private capital perspective. You know, I've got an interesting perspective on this that I think is a little bit different than most of what you see in the public debates, in the public square, and in the public forum with our industry. I think, unfortunately, not that these are unimportant conversations, but we tend to spend all of our time debating what is the e-liquidity premium. Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? Is it still around? How long is it going to stay? Or is IRR the right tool to measure this? Or should we do public market equivalent? Should it be some combination? Again, those are important things. I even I even mentioned that that's one of our four pillars that we want to kind of facilitate and steward is some resolution on that. But I think the larger point on private capital is not about finding the new area of alpha, but rather it's a recognition that the public markets are kind of not what they used to be, and that's okay. The Wilshire 5000 is a misnomer. It got as high 25 years ago as. 7,000 plus public equities, and it's down to half of that. So it's 3,500 to 4,000 approximately. Companies, you mean, in that index? That's right. And to exacerbate that even further, there's been a lot of studies to look at kind of new economies. So biotech and social media, and a lot of the kind of marketplace business models Those folks are largely depending on the venture capital, the growth, and to some degree, the buyout world of private markets for all of their needs, right? And so the halo back in the 80s, when kind of some of us grew up or cut our teeth professionally of going public, where it was this episodic event that you were kind of burdened to move towards eventually, and all of private markets was trying to kind of get you there, that has gone away. And private markets are serving many of the same purposes and satisfying many of those reasons companies went public 20 years ago. And so, as I said earlier, I see private markets as a beta play on the global economy. And any fiduciary that's attempting to have risk on exposure over multiple cycles and multiple generations of growth sectors and industries, it's not a public versus private. It's an equity discussion. How do you have enterprise exposure to growth companies? and it's gonna be in both private and public, full stop. And so again, I just think we often have the wrong debates and the wrong discussions. Equity exposure is equity exposure. And obviously there's liquidity ramifications that allocators need to think very carefully about depending on their liability stream and type. But we spend way too much time thinking about liquidity and usually are much too liquid in our portfolios in my view and much less time thinking about how do I just get exposure to the future global economy opportunity to benefit my beneficiaries. So I think about this much differently that Cliff Asnes, who I'm a fan of in the way he thinks about this, you know, he once said that maybe we should have a li- an illiquidity discount, meaning illiquidity, act- the lockup actually saves yourself from yourself, right? All the misery we see, and we could pick March of 20, or we could pick the last eight weeks, right? We know that the public markets are full of emotion and correlations completely come together. And obviously, these public organizations are not worth 20% less one day and 10% more the next day. That's just, that's not true. So, you know, the the delayed marks get a lot of scrutiny on the private equity side. But in reality, there's a benefit of this too. And what I've said, you know, if, if you're worried about a month long or even a quarter long delay, in the enterprise value of a company that you own you're not investing in that enterprise you're trading paper and so we get just too caught up in this timing but again much more i could say there but a different view of public equity than i think most
0: so you're sort of saying yeah private market if i'm trying to paraphrase you're sort of saying it's not, it's not necessarily about saying oh it's it's sort of necessarily saying it's a diversifier it's less volatile or whatever you're sort of saying you to get a complete global markets portfolio you just need to have some allocation to it because of the nature of markets and companies going public later in their life cycle enterprise value creation happening in that part of the market.
2: I would say it this way, Dan, I think that's the primary role that people don't talk enough about. I am a believer that there is a persistent illiquidity premium. Again, I don't, I don't find it helpful to debate, whether it's three or four as it has been, or whether it's one or two, it probably is getting squeezed as with any bit of alpha will ultimately turn into beta. So, I do think it will be there. You will be compensated for these opportunities to create real value outside of the noise of the public markets. But more importantly, is yes, Dan, I believe that equity is converging. These lifecycle funds, these crossover funds are becoming more the reality, and I think are symbolic of this convergence of the two. And I think we need to think differently about our private capital. Yeah. So do you
0: think you'll see more of these crossover funds then that do a little bit of the public and private side then? Do you think that's something we will see more of? It's
2: amazing. You know, 25 years ago, this started with TCV partners and hardly anybody knows that, right? And then Altimeter, Brad Gersner, if you know, that organization went from the public hedge fund world down into some private capital. That's over a decade ago. And it's only recently, and obviously the big headline was Sequoia, the granddaddy of them all, saying 50% of our balance sheet is actually in the public markets. Again, you talk about jaw dropping, like Wait a second. What? And I think it challenged, as I alluded to a few moments ago, like this arbitrary episode that venture capital and growth, private equity have always had as a as a starting point where we move you to this event in time that we call the IPO or strategic buyout. And then we exit and we move on to the next one. And I think people are starting to ask why we know these business models. We've walked with them we've created disruption, we've saved costs, we've brought in executives, we know these individuals better than anyone. Why should we be forced to kind of have this fragmented bucketing of what's private equity and what's public equity? So Sequoia is symbolic of a, a big shift in the thinking and you're seeing Tiger and Wellington and even kind of the traditional long only, the world I grew up in in Boston, they're moving into private equity. And so they're, it's coming from both ways. And I, again, I think it's smoothing different form of smoothing i think it's smoothing people's kind of view of what is equity exposure yeah one final point on that i think it's really interesting because one beef people have with consultants
0: is we love to split the world into little pigeonholes and then you know we want managers to show up in each little pigeonhole and don't come and talk to us if you don't fit one of these little defined pigeonholes and of course when influential people view the world like that, other smart people will deliberately go at the cusps between the pigeonholes because that's where you'll get security issues. So actually it gets to a, the second version of that is you actually want to invest in the funds that are going across the pigeonholes. But then one bad reaction is the consultants will say, oh no, 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 this is style drift. You're now going from one to the other. And it's very hard to tell the two apart, I think. But I think that's exactly where the debate is. Is it style drift or is it actually a sensible view of saying there's no real reason why these two things should be artificially separated? And in fact, that creates
2: opportunities because that's the way the world has looked at it. Yeah. I I mean, you've mentioned one piece of our scaffolding that seems so normal to us in our industry, whether it's peer rankings or whether it's growth versus values kind of style drift or whether that's the consultant apparatus or whether it's even our org charts and the way we've always hired and structured teams. And I think we overcomplicate. You know, constructing a portfolio is really about growth, yield or income, downside protection and inflation protection. And those buckets, we tend to proliferate and blow up into what we call asset classes. And in many cases, you know, for all those scaffolding reasons, I think there's much too many of them. So I, I'm seeing from the more sophisticated allocators, a simplified form of how they think about constructing portfolios. And then they have to backward engineer it for their boards because everybody and the consultants are forcing them to put it back into the asset classes. So. I hope this is the beginning of a a more thoughtful client centered approach, more goals based approach versus the asset class approach, which really should be a residual, not the starting point.
1: Yeah, no, I really like that. I really like that. And again, we could probably keep talking about that for a really long time, but I'm going to I'm going to move us on again. I think probably final key areas to discuss we had your, your friend Stacey Havener on a few months ago. Was it last year even, Dan? I can't remember when we spoke to Stacey.
0: That was earlier this year. Earlier this, this, this year. year like,
1: yeah. And she used a quote of yours, which she did a tribute to you at the time, which we both really, really loved, which was culture eats sharp ratio for breakfast, which I think speaks to your fifth point in the paper that we've been talking through. So I wonder if you could explain what you mean by the quote and, and how it applies to investment.
2: Sure. Well, it's clearly stolen from the old leadership adage of culture eat strategy for breakfast. It was a play on that. I mentioned operational alpha in the recent piece that we did portfolio for the future. So this research and thought leadership that Stacy was referring to very kindly and she even did a piece on it. So she was, it was nice to have her in my corner because she's got a a huge following and and very reputable and, and I think the world of her. So thankful to her for that. But we had done some research and some surveying of several hundred investors, meaning asset owners on how they value and think through non-financial elements, non-quantitative elements of due diligence or manager selection, right? And what we found, even though our hypothesis was directionally right, even shocked us. So just a couple high points is that 96% of the respondents said that the non-financial or non-quantitative factors were much more important either equally or more important than the quantitative factors, right? Even more interestingly, 77% said that the qualitative factors were actually more predictive, more predictive of sustainable outperformance of a benchmark than the quantitative. And that that to me is just a headline I was heartened to see, but I think it gave quantitative weight to a hunch and a philosophy that we had that maybe needed a little meat on the bone, if you will. Now, what it also went into is, is for more idiosyncratic alternative due diligence processes, so think of venture capital, or really difficult to understand hedge fund strategies, some of the macro and systematic approaches, private equity, private debt to some degree, you have to rely much more on qualitative factors. So when I say that, by the way, I mean things like culture and governance and succession planning, right? And is there sustainability, is there staying power, is there repeatability in this manager's strategy? Is is the process going to be persistent? Or is this a function of a celebrity founder? Is this a function of the current marketplace, the style getting lucky, a really good, particularly in venture capital? Did they hit one or two grand slams? And then is that really, so we did a lot of work on this kind of, exercising and walking through the data, but it did have tremendous influence on even how we're now teaching due diligence in our CAIA curriculum in that this is an underappreciated secret sauce of the way you should think about searching for and eventually including and assessing managers is that it can't be and shouldn't be all about just what have you done for me lately on the performance? Because it just doesn't tell the full story of a long-term relationship with. You can think about Swenson as a perfect example of that. Everybody points to Swenson and, and the 15-year average of how he would hire these managers and they would golf together and they would dine together. And some of the anecdotes of what these allocators told me on the most important questions they would ask were over a meal or talking to the receptionist, right? And trying to get inside the layers of the culture that the PowerPoint decks, either would gloss over or were meant to hide, right? And Swenson was a master of this. And it's not that we should all just export the Yale model. But I think he could, he taught us a lot about how to think through partnership over the long term.
1: Mm-hmm. And I suppose the other common investment freeze that we're all very familiar with, although it's a little bit less catchy to me than, than your culture one, is past performance doesn't you know, predict future performance, which everyone knows, but everyone struggles to put a framework around it. I think the way you've just described it as a really good way of, of thinking about partly why that's the case. And secondly, and importantly, what should you look for instead?
2: Yeah. I think it goes back to our diversification point too, is that by definition, and again, in a market of risk on 10%, 60, 40 performance for 12 years, this seems an anathema, it seems even ridiculous to say, but when you're truly diversified through a more norm- normal market cycle movement diversification means that some things will outperform and some things will underperform and if your sole again i'm being dramatic and specific for effect here but if your sole purpose is looking at three and five year returns by definition you're going to fire all those strategies at the worst time or just before they're going to be effective as a diversifier And I think as simple as that sounds, diversification means some are going to outperform, some are going to underperform. And the mean of all of that is you're going to hit your return goal and your outcome. That's the whole purpose of why we exist. It's not just to find the next alpha generator. And so, again, I think culture tells a great story about can I stay with this style and this team and this strategy through several cycles? Do I believe that it will play its role? It's very unique role in the portfolio across several cycles.
0: And it felt like one of your big insights in that piece was that it's still going underappreciated by the managers more than anything. And I think, and to put a little bit of nuance on that, I think people do get the culture is important, or at least they've been, it's been ingrained in them to say something about it. But you'll often get, right, here's the top five bullet points about our culture. You know, it's all about our people. We have a great team ethos, blah, blah, blah. And it's so boilerplate. Whereas, yeah, it's actually like kind of now really tell me about your culture, right? Which is not about what comes off the PowerPoint, but somehow that is still still being underappreciated, I think, right?
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. And I, I think just the right questions to ask, you know, what happens when you have a disagreement and how are you incentivizing the younger generation to stay long-term? There's specific questions, again, that you can really get at and kind of peel back from the platitudes, Stand to your point, to really get a real picture of whether there's true healthiness and stay power in the culture. And I think we need to employ that much more.
1: Yeah. Well, John, I think we're probably coming towards our wrap up now. We've, we've got a few questions we ask all of our guests. The first of those, I don't know how you're going to choose this, but what's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from today's episode?
2: Well, I've alluded to this, but maybe to be more succinct here, in The Greatest of Ironies, one of the things Kaya has been in the business up for 20 years is taking the alternative out of alternatives, right? So we like to talk about spelling alternatives with two L, all right? We think about a holistic portfolio. That's, again, back to the portfolio for the future, where you're designing a portfolio, a set of exposures, beta exposures, to deliver on an outcome. And you have an investable universe of asset classes and strategies that is almost endless. And how do you construct, how do you choose, almost like a cafeteria, a set, a subset of that that are going to meet your specific capital investment outcomes. And that, so that's really important. It's not about pushing the new sexy stuff or the non-conventional stuff at the expense of the traditional stuff. We want to be about all options, alternatives. So that, I think we couldn't say that more succinctly. And I think some people are confused when we're not sitting up there going more private equity, more private equity. We, we believe in private capital, but we also believe in reform to make this better and more have long-term benefits to the underlying investor, which is really why we exist. And John, what do you
0: think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: Well, more recently, I think it's been the reality that 10 to 12% 60-40 is not normal uh, and that you usually need to work a lot harder. And We opened a piece that we talked mainly about, Dan, with this idea that in the 80s and 90s, and this was largely the case in developed markets around the world, you had 12 to 13% 10 year fixed income returns. In the 90s, it was six to seven. You could get to those outcomes pretty darn easily with just public fixed income. And then of course, the last 20 years we've talked about because risk on equity has provided more than enough. What happens when we go back to a more normal environment where real capital market returns are three to 5%? What happens? And so I think it's underappreciated asset allocation The importance of starting with the client, their goal, their outcome expectation, and then constructing a portfolio from that. And the the 60-40 debate or the asset allocation debate, as I said earlier, should be a residual. It's not the lead. It's a residual of what that client needs.
1: Yeah, I really like that. I'm definitely taking that one away. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to implement it in the short term, given how we're so used to working in asset classes. But hey, hey. And final question from me, John, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts?
2: Yeah. So I'm a voracious reader, first of all. So a couple that I've read more recently, Sebastian Malaby wrote The Power Law, which is the history of venture capital, which I just found fascinating. I mean, it, it was a caricature. Each chapter was kind of a caricature of one of the titans that we all know now as a leader. And I just would strongly recommend it just gave great, I think, context to a lot of what's going on now. And, and some of these, some of these crossover funds I just mentioned and their history and uh, why enterprise value is sometimes better created in public markets. Maybe one of the more prescient books I read back pre-Ukraine-Russia, you know, way back in late 21, which feels like a decade ago, Walter Isaacson's Kissinger. So regardless of what you think of Henry and his time in Secretary of State, we've had largely peace, as we know, for 20 to 30 years in most of our professional lives. And Kissinger operated in a world where that was the complete opposite. And so what happens when geopolitics is a necessary and critical input to how we think about constructing portfolios and not when do we think Russia Ukraine will end not making prophetic predictions on what's happening next but rather as a repeatable input to a process and i think lots of people are starting to think through how did geopolitics once again not since the 70s become an important part of that so that that book was just really interesting I also listen to a lot of podcasts. So Ted Seides, except for this one, of course, is my favorite. So a very favorite digital assets podcast was with Eric Peters, who's the CIO of One River, who's a digital asset and macro hedge fund GP. And I think Eric just had the best macro view of where we're going with digital assets and DeFi and blockchain and cryptography generally. He's not waving the flag to buy Ether or Bitcoin or Dogecoin, it's more, how is this going to disrupt the very foundations of what we know as finance and insurance and other industries? And how do we get exposure to that, right? So that's one that we've, I think, thought about a lot is how do we teach digital assets properly without, to your question earlier, Mary, not taking a stand on what we think is the shiniest object in the room at any given point, which we have to be really careful of. Yeah, that is a really interesting question. How you can sort of do it in a
0: balanced way. There's often not, not a, lot, a huge amount of balance in that, in that, in that particular debate. Well, John, it's been great speaking to you today, all the way from Utah. Thank you so much for taking the time out to join us.
2: Ah, oh, it's been my pleasure. Again, we could have talked for, I think, an hour on any one of those subjects, but it's been a, it's been a fun ride, kind of lightning round through a lot of different topics.
1: Yeah, absolutely, a true whistle stop tour. But, but that's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Do join us again next week for another episode. Take care.